The New Testament reading comes from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, and it's found on page 858 of your Pew Bible. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Anas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we of Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you were authorized to do so. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. The word of the Lord. Bonichin Hope, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue our Advent series, uh, looking at the ministry of John the Baptist and the way that he prepares the way for the Lord. Before we turn to this text, let us turn together to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the promise that it proclaims. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel that it graciously presents us with. I do pray, Lord, that the words that follow would be faithful to the intentions to this text, Lord, and that you would use these truths, Lord, by the work and power of your Holy Spirit in all of our lives, that we may grow in our faith, that you might conform us more fully and more deeply into the image of Christ. And it's in Christ's name that we ask this, Lord, and we do so in the power and the efficacy of your Holy Spirit, Father God. Amen. Well, today, like I said, we, we continue our, our sermon series, our Advent series, looking at the ministry of John the Baptist and specifically how each gospel presents the ministry of, of John the Baptist. We're, we're looking specifically at how he prepares the way of the Lord so that we, during this Advent season, might prepare our own hearts as we prepare to celebrate Christmas, as, as, as we look upon and celebrate, ponder, Christ's first advent so many years ago, and 
as we look forward to his sure and certain advent that is to come, his second coming. And today, specifically, we are looking at Luke's account of John the Baptist, and we're, we're going to do so under three headings. I want us to look at three things. The, the vipers that kill, the verdict that condemns, and the vision that saves. Right? Good alliteration there. We've got vipers, verdict, and, and vision. And so let us look at each of those in turn. Let's start first with the, with the vipers that, that kill. We talked about this actually during the kids' sermon, but John here, he does not begin his ministry by mincing his words. The very, very, very first thing we see him in Luke's account saying to the crowds is this, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And again, Luke doesn't describe any particular group that John is addressing here. He simply tells us that John is addressing the crowds. This raises an important question, right? If John is addressing the crowds generally, how is it that he can say this to each and every last person? How can he tell them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath to come? He doesn't know them personally. That would be like a doctor sort of looking at, at, at every patient in a crowded ER and, and, and just saying, yep, every single person here has this particular sickness, right? And a doctor can't do that. You have to personally examine each patient to find out what is it that they're suffering from. So how can John do this? Think about that. How can John say this? The only way he can do this is if John is speaking of something universal. If, if John is, is, is speaking about something that applies to everyone, all of us, in the present human condition. And take note, the imagery here is very important. John is ministering in the wilderness. And, and last week we talked about the importance of the wilderness in the Bible, it is a significant and charged biblical setting. It is in the wilderness that the people of God wandered with God for 40 years after God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And to call the crowd a brood of vipers in the wilderness, this actually brings up a very significant event in biblical history, in the biblical imaginary. In Numbers 21, the people speak against God and Moses, and they say, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. God has rescued them from slavery, a place where they labored and toiled without end, a place that was murdering their male babies. God has miraculously provided food and drink for them day after day here in the desert. God has made them his own special people, his own special possession. And yet here in the wilderness, all the people can say is, God, you brought us out here to die and we hate the food you have given to us. God, we would rather be slaves in Egypt than your children. Lord, all you have given us is worthless. And God then surprised, uh, he, God, sorry, God responds in a surprising but in a just way. We read, 
Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. This is a punishment. They have sought life away from God, which is death, and now they have exactly what they wanted. But in this punishment, we also see a sobering symbolism, especially when we connect this incident to the words of John. Who are the serpents in the wilderness that bite and kill others with their venom? Well, it's the brood of vipers. And in the wilderness, what does John call all the crowds and by implication also all of us? A brood of vipers. The actions of the Israelites, their ingratitude to God, their cruel words against God and Moses, Moses, their most committed neighbor, their delusional thinking that makes them believe that it'd be better to, back, to be back under the brutal and murderous Egyptian regime. This is venom. The venom of the serpents here is only a picture of the venom in us. The serpents can only poison the body. Our venom can poison the very soul. This is the venom that runs through our very hearts, all of our hearts. This is the venom of sin's corruption. This is why John calls all of the crowds, all of us, serpents. There is something deeply venomous in the fallen human heart. John doesn't divide the crowd into the good and the bad. No, he calls all of them and all of us vipers. There's something wrong with all of us. As the Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously says, if it were all only so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The venom of sin, it poisons all of our hearts. Augustine puts it like this. There is in me a lamentable darkness in which my latent possibilities are hidden from myself. And these are not the words of a serial killer, right? These are the words of perhaps the greatest theologian of the Christian church. But how is it that we know these things about ourselves? As we'll see later, John calls the crowds to better love and service in their community, whether they are tax collectors or soldiers or just somebody with extra food or an extra pair of clothes. And this makes sense, right? If, if the law of God calls us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so the call to fulfill the love of God can only be carried out in and with community, and friends, an essential way that we come to know about, that we come to find out about the venom, the lamentable darkness inside of us is through community. If you don't recognize your viperous venom, then you are not really in community. If you don't think you have venom lurking in your words and deeds, then you are either delusional or isolated. And it's easier than ever to trick ourselves about this because in our modern moment, we literally don't have to be with anyone. We can shop from home. We can work from home. We can exist wholly and completely from home. But here's the thing. 
We are all called to a range of social and community roles. We are called to be friends, neighbors, colleagues, citizens, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, some to biological and adopted children, and all of us to spiritual children. And the only way that you can fool yourself into thinking that you don't have this venom is by being separated from others. Only in isolation can we think that we're all right. Social media and computer-mediated relationships, they will not give us what we need here. When the conversation gets uncomfortable, you can just turn off the screen. When you find yourself disagreeing with someone, you can, you can block them, you can X out the computer window, you can decide to follow and friend only those people who agree with everything that you say, and sort of thereby reinforcing your echo chamber. And the image that you present, that we all present, is always the happy, successful, and, and often vacationing image of social media curation. However, it is in true and actual relationships that we come to know that we, like John tells us, are a brood of vipers. And different relationships will diagnose this in different ways. Personally, I did not realize how big of a jerk I was until I got married. And if you want uh, confirmation on that, please talk to Kristen after the, the service. I'm sure she'll be happy to second that. Um, and now, as a dad, each and every day, I realize just how deep my jerkiness goes. We all feel this, right? In a recent Atlantic article, I, I actually read this quote from a memoir about fatherhood. He said this, you don't know anything about yourself until the day your adorable little boy looks you in the eye, notices your face right up close to him, and punches you in the nose. And I read this, and I felt seen. <laughs> we all know that, right? The, the adorable baby is easy to love when it's, it's clapping hands, when he or she is rolling on the carpet. But what about when those babies, who, uh, who I have actually heard one experienced parent call vipers and diapers, what happens when that baby punches you in the face? That's when your love is not just tested, but revealed. Your response in that moment will show you how deep your current love presently goes. We'll also show you all the ways that you still need to grow. It will show you the venom running through your veins. And this is a key thing, an essential thing that relationships do. And they do this even and especially when they get hard. Because you don't really know yourself until you've had to work through issues of confession and forgiveness and reconciliation with those around you. You don't really know yourself until you're totally in the wrong and you know that you should go through the hard work of confession and forgiveness. You don't really know yourself until you're in a situation where you know you need to have a conversation, but you really just don't want to have it. What will you do? And how will you do it? That's a key way that we come to know who we are, and the venom that still lurks inside of our veins. And so without these situations, it is really easy to be self-righteous. But, you might ask, 
can we really speak of venom here? Are we really killing and crushing people's souls? I want to borrow another example uh, from parenting, about parenting, actually taken from that same Atlantic article. And writer Michael Chabon, he recalls a time when his daughter had just got a haircut and she asked how it looked. And he said at the time he was thinking about something else and he didn't give an immediate answer. And in that moment, he said it broke her heart. And he reflects on the episode and he says this, I was shocked by my own thought, thoughtlessness and I was ashamed of it. But the thing I felt most of all was horror. Horror is the only fit response when you are confronted by the full extent of your power to break another human being. She had a crack in her now, fine as hair, but like all cracks, irreversible. We'll talk later about whether these cracks are indeed irreversible, but friends, it is absolutely true that even in the smallest, most careless comments, we have the ability to poison those around us like vipers. Do we realize the power over the people that God has placed in our lives? If you think about it, the frightening thing about Shabon's reflection is not its bigness, but its smallness. I mean, I make fatherly fumbles like this every single week. And in so doing, I, I poison my kids with my own self-focused venom. Because here's the thing. Life is not the big moments. The big moments are not really all that formative because there's simply not enough of them. Mainly what the big moments do is they reveal who those million small moments have made us. Much, much more common, much, much more formative and the big moments are those everyday subtle words and actions that we daily, often on autopilot, speak and do to those around us. How many times, for instance, have, have you withheld forgiveness, sort of forcing the other person to make the first move? How many times have we thought, well, well, they didn't invite me to this, so I'm not going to invite them to that? How many times have we sat staring at our phone when our child is trying to tell us about their day? How many times have we described our day as worse than it actually was in order to make our spouse feel bad about their day? How many times have we said something without any thought to the way that it's being received because we think that the way that you say something, it doesn't matter as long as truth is on your side. And yes, we must speak the truth. But we have to make sure that we're always speaking the truth in love. John calls the crowds and all of us a brood of vipers. These are hard words to be sure. But he speaks these words because he loves the people and seeks their good. Actually, Jesus will go on and say that of anyone keeping the law of God, and no one has done it better than John the Baptist, it still falls short of the righteousness to which Christ calls us. But John does love. God and neighbor. John tells us hard words. And we have to ask, how many times have we created hairline fractures in the soul for those around us, by our cold, by our callous, by our careless words and actions? And we should really think about this in particular at the moment, right, as we prepare to host and be hosted by friends and family. 
we have to remember that these things are poison. And we have to remember that these things are potent. And perhaps in your own heart, you feel bitter about someone wronging you. And if a person truly has wronged you, if they truly have bit you with their poison, like each of us do to one another, then realize that this poison has its full effect in bitterness. If you are bitter, you are not getting the best of that person. If you are bitter, you are letting the poison get the best of you. That's letting the poison take its full effect. And with an embittered heart, we will have much more poison with which to infect others. Again, John tells us, you brood of vipers who warn you to flee from the wrath to come. If you don't really believe you are venomous, then you are fooling yourself and more than likely you are not in real community. And take note, John tells us that we must flee our poison, we must flee from God's wrath that is upon us. And this is important because so often we think of hell as a kind of sudden punishment with no real connection to our life in the here and now. But John is warning us if we do not flee our viperness, we are fitting ourselves for hell. Hell is already the direction to which we are heading. And so we must flee from this course of life. What is the most bitter place of all? What is the most self-righteous place of all? What is the place where it's always someone else's fault? What is the place where we are furthest from repentance and acknowledging our own sin? What is the place where, like the children of Israel in the wilderness, we hurl the cruelest words at God and neighbor? That place is hell. This is the wrath that is to come as God hands us over to our bitter, hardened, and poisoned hearts. Be careful that you are not preparing yourself for this place. Again, John warns us to flee the wrath that is to come. And this brings us to our second point, the verdict that condemns. The crowd, they have a defense, or at least they think they do. But John anticipates their objection. He says, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Yes, like we said, John is comparing them to the poisonous serpents of Numbers 21, but John here is also making a reference to Genesis 3. He is relating them to, to Satan, to the serpent in the Garden of the Eden. Sorry, the Garden of Eden. And strictly speaking, in the Greek, the term brood of vipers can be translated as offspring of vipers. And it's here that we have a direct allusion, a direct reference to God's cursing of Satan in Genesis 3. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And here we're told that there are two basic kinds of offspring. The offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And John is calling the crowds the offspring of the serpent. The crowd would certainly, certainly, certainly catch this reference back to John, or sorry, back to Genesis 3. And so John expects that they might very well respond by saying, no, 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 no. We are offspring of Abraham, who is an offspring of the woman. We are physical children of Abraham, and so we are not offspring of the serpent, we're not children of, of Satan. In fact, we have the genealogies to prove it. 
And we're going to talk more about the significance of, of being a child of Abraham when we look at Matthew's account of, of John the Baptist. And as we'll see then, that, that, that being a true child of, of Abraham is a matter of sharing Abraham's faith and God's promise. But for now, as we look at Luke, I want you to notice the basic moves, the two basic moves that the crowd is tempted to make. They are tempted to say that John's condemnation doesn't apply to them because of who they are. Other people might be vipers, but not us, because we're physical descendants of Abraham. Other people might be the offspring of the serpent, but certainly not us. We are the people of God, but, but, but they, and insert your least favorite group here, they are the vipers. They're the bad people. Gentiles, Sumerians, Romans, fellow countrymen that we don't like, they're the vipers, not us. And in doing this, again, the crowd makes two moves that are actually quite common in our modern moment. They justify their own behavior. We're already okay. And they point the finger at some other group. In their case, those who did not physically descend from Abraham. And so we have to ask ourselves, how do we do this? When other people act in venomous ways, we are quick to call them horrible. But at the same time, we often paint our own venom as virtue. In her fascinating book, Strange Rights, uh, scholar and journal journalist Tara Isabella Burton, she, she categorizes a number of modern spiritualities, and one of the ones she looks at is the self-care movement. And she gives us actually a startling example of this by quoting from a self-care article, and that article commends this practice. Quote, Every now and then, my friend creates a list with two columns, people who invigorate me on the left, people who deplete me on the right. She categorizes friends, coworkers, acquaintances, and those she's newly met into one of these two sides and cuts ties with anyone on the right. That might sound a bit harsh to some of you, but think about it. Why waste your time and energy on people who don't add any value to your life? This is venom, but our society often brands it and sells it as virtue. If you only choose to spend your time with people who always and only invigorate you, not only will you not have any true friendships, but, but no, no offense, I'm not sure that those people actually exist. Even more, if we do this, we will see people only as tools and instruments of our own goals and ambitions and happiness. It, it instrumentalizes everyone around us. We will approach other people like a viper approaching a mouse. And in that, we will never actually come to know ourselves. If you treat people like this, you will fool yourself into thinking that you have no venom. And this approach to other people, it is a surefire recipe for self-righteousness and a delusional view of your own virtue. No, 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 no. I'm not being selfish or venomous. I'm not biting other people. I am the children of Abraham, or child of Abraham. No, no, no. I'm practicing self-care. I'm doing what I need to do to take care of me. And, and yes, it might seem harsh, but my life is ultimately about me and my happiness. So yes, this is one common way that we often justify ourselves as vipers, but there's also another approach. 
Not only do we seek to justify our actions, but we also tend to point to this or that group and we say, no, no, they're the ones that are the vipers. They're the bad ones. And not surprisingly, all of this goes together, gets wrapped up together. The more we are separated and isolated from others, the more self-righteous we become, and the more likely we are to accuse this or that group of being the offspring of serpents instead of us. If this is true, then our lonely age should be a terribly self-righteous age, and this is exactly what we find. How does this work out? Well, it could work out in many ways, but, but very often in our modern moment, it's through politics that we make this claim about ourselves that we are children of Abraham and other people are offspring of the serpent. And please hear me. I'm not speaking here about the, the good and important aim of, of civic virtue and civic duty. What I'm speaking of here is the danger of politics as salvation, politics as the core of my meaning and identity. Drawing from recent research, columnist David Brooks, he writes this, and it's, it's a bit of a long quote, but it, it hits at the heart of this dangerous dynamic. Brooks writes this, Lonely young people are seven times more likely to say that they are active in politics than young people who aren't lonely. For people who feel disrespected, unseen, and alone, politics is a seductive form of social therapy. It offers them a comprehensible moral landscape. The line between good and evil runs not down the middle of every human heart, but between groups. Life is a struggle between us, the forces of good, and them, the forces of evil. Politics appears to give people a sense of righteousness. A person's moral stature is based not on their conduct, but on their location on the political spectrum. You don't have to be good, you just have to be liberal, or you have to be conservative. The stronger a group's claim to victim status, the more virtuous it is assumed to be and the more secure its members can feel about their own innocence. Politics also provides an easy way to feel a sense of purpose. You don't have to feed the hungry or sit with the widow to be moral. You just have to experience the right emotion. You delude yourself that you are participating in civic life by being properly enraged at the other side. We are children of Abraham, we are the politically moral, and you are children of Satan, the serpent, the politically reprehensible. We are the innocent victims and you are the venomous vipers ruining our society. And the more enraged I am at you, the more I let the bitterness of this venom poison my heart, the more virtuous I am. This is the irony. The more venomous I become, the less the viper I am. The more poisonous my conduct towards you, the less serpentine I become. The more insidious and inhuman I am toward you, the more innocent I become. The greater my cruelty toward you, the greater the case for my righteousness. Friends, we must fight against these tendencies in all of us. We must recognize how we ourselves, all of us, have been a brood of vipers. Only then can we begin to be healed of the venom of sin. And this takes us to our third and our final point, the vision that saves. 
John the Baptist is the one who prepares the way of the Lord. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, the one foretold by the prophet Isaiah. And through his ministry, we read this. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John's ministry in preparing the way of the Lord is a ministry of leveling. He lowers the mountains and he raises the valleys. But what does this mean and how does it relate to his calling of everyone in the crowd a brood of vipers? Well, if we look closely at statements like this, by which John does this very thing, by which John levels, we've all worked poison venom in our lives and the lives of others. None of us can cling to an identity that escapes judgment. None of us can justify ourselves. John's words condemn all of us. John's words put all of us in exactly the same place before the Lord. Everyone must respond to this or face the wrath of God. And those who believe themselves to be the innocent and the righteous and the good ones, in contrast to those who they consider bad, they are the mountains who John lowers. In the same way, those who despair of life itself because of what they have done, those who feel hopeless because of the hurt and brokenness they have worked through their sins, they are the valleys that are raised. We all stand equally condemned by the just and the beautiful righteousness of God. As Christ Jesus tells us, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Because of our venom, we all stand condemned. All of us must see ourselves as vipers in the wilderness. This is the leveling that John works. But as the text tells us, this prepares the way of the Lord by which we, quote, shall see the salvation of God. What does this mean? Well, it points us to where we must look for salvation. In fact, in the account of, of, of the Israelites being bitten by vipers in the wilderness, they are actually saved by what they look upon, by what they see. They saw and they were saved. In response to the serpents that God sends into the camp, the people come to Moses and they repent and they confess, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses then prays to the Lord on behalf of the people, and the Lord says this to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Moses does just this. Moses makes a bronze serpent. He sets it on a pole, a pole for, for everyone to look upon and, and see. And then we're told, if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The people, admitted, the people admitted their sin. They looked upon the serpent on the pole, and then they were healed. But what about John? What is John's message? Well, it's one of repentance. John tells us, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance. These crowds, like the Israelites in the wilderness, must repent for their venom against both God and neighbor. And the same is true for all of us. But how can they and how can we be healed of this venom coursing through our hearts? 
How can we be healed of corruption? How can we escape and flee from the wrath to come? John, like Moses, will also point us to a serpent on a pole, and it is there that we see and look upon salvation. Not long after John preaches this message, the one for whom John prepared the way, he tells us this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The people infected with the viper's venom had to look upon the viper on the pole in the same way all of us. Corrupted by sin as we are, we must look upon the one who became sin on our behalf. As the Apostle Paul tells us, for our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Christ took our sin upon himself, suffering the death and the wrath that we deserve for all the ways that we have poisoned relationships with God and neighbor. And so we must repent. We must let John level all of us before God. And then we must look upon the cross. We must see the salvation to which John points. And if we do, Christ takes upon himself the guilt of every careless word we have ever spoken. As Paul tells us, Christ takes our sin and Christ gives us his own righteousness. And this irrevertible verdict, irreversible verdict, is our justification. Even more, as John tells us, Christ baptizes us with his Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is that medicine who heals the venom and corruption of sin. This lifelong process of our healing, this is sanctification. And because of the Lord's healing of our sinful, venomous hearts, a new way is opened up to us. Because of the Lord's healing of our bitterness and brokenness and the cracks and the fractures, we can be made whole again. And if we put our faith in Christ, we will be made whole again. We see this in the ministry of John. After heeding John's call to repent, the crowds ask him this, What then shall we do? And what's John's answer? They must no longer work poison in their community, but they must work the very love of God. He tells us to love God by loving our neighbor. John tells us to share our resources, that anyone who has two tunics or extra food is to share it with the person who has neither. He tells tax collectors not to collect more money than they're supposed to. He tells the soldiers not to extort money or bear false witness. He tells them to be content with their wages. This is the life before God and neighbor that Christ has saved us for. This is the fruitful life of repentance that John calls us to. And friends, here is the amazing thing. These good works, these fruit, they are not how we are saved. No, they are the true and certain result and fruit of our being saved. We are saved by grace alone. We are not saved by our good works, but for our good works. As has often been said, we are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. This faith, this looking upon Christ crucified on the pole, this seeing of the salvation of the Lord, it will work to foster the very community that our venom so often destroys. And so let us be just such a community. 
Let us share the good gifts that God has given to us, and let us as a church truly be a people who loves and serves the university and the city. During this time of Advent, I invite you to ponder the life that God has called us to. Long for it. During Advent, see this life as the joyful invitation that it is, and ask in prayer, in contrition, in earnestness, in expectation, that the Lord might enable you and might enable all of us to live into it. Prepare our hearts, O Lord, to receive by your spirit the joyful life of love that you have called the Christian to and saved the Christian for. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that we can see salvation itself upon the cross. Thank you for Christ. And thank you for his baptizing of us in the Holy Spirit. Give us glad and grateful hearts. Please, Father God. Amen.